Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we're having, um, I think I'd call it a, a superheroes lineup. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Start, starting off with a guy who's, we forecast as one of the next superstars of American he cuisine. He already is. I mean, he, already, like, he, already, he already is, but he's going to be even, even more so. Yeah. And, go, and, go ahead, go and ahead. we also love him, so. Go ahead, clever dick. Pronounce his name. Oh, uh, Kwame Onwuachi. Who, who's already written a life story. Yeah, a memoir, yeah. He'll, he'll be like Winston Churchill's World War II. He'll need six books to cover it all. Oh, he's wonderful. He's just wonderful. He's a re- truly remarkable young man, and uh, we're, we're delighted to catch up with him and bring him to you. Kwame Onwuachi. Do I do that right, Kwame? Perfect. And you you worked on this book with a, a friend that we've interviewed, a writer who's really a good writer, Joshua David Stein. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, it's, as I told you before, I mean, I get a lot of memoirs, but this one, called Notes from a Young Black Chef, a memoir, was a page-turner. I mean, I was on edge half the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, but, I mean, you, we, we you've knew, done so much. We knew, we knew he was still alive because we talked to you. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't have been so here. sure. Well, I'm give us a here. little bit of the, just a brief recap of of um, your life story. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I grew up in the Bronx, and my mom, she's a uh, single mom. Uh, we were in a one-bedroom apartment, and she started a catering company. Me and my sister became the first two employees. <laughs> so uh, you're probably very much against the law, but uh, it taught me a lot, you know, to really, um, uh, I was really inspired by the entrepreneurial spirit that she had, you know, and I saw that at a very young age. Mm-hmm. So um, from there, you know, I, I kind of started veering off on the wrong path. And you did all kinds career. of wrong path things, didn't you? I did. <laughs> I did, yes. Yeah. Um, it's easy to do in the South Bronx, though. Yeah, well. Um, but uh, although but, uh, the funny part. My mother that in the bud, so she sent me to Nigeria. That's how you ended up in Nigeria with your grandfather, your father's family, right? Mm-hmm. To learn respect. I thought that was brilliant of your mother. So, yeah, and brilliant you, and, and also scary at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a different world. And and you came back. Totally. Yeah, what did you do when you got back? Um, You know, I kind of put my head on straight and, um, you know, went to school. And, you know, I found a newfound appreciation for life. And, you know, just growing up in America in general and how many opportunities there are. Yeah. And... and I guess that with as things transpired, you got the influences. What? How would you define your your style of cooking? The influences on it. Um, you know, it comes from my childhood. Uh-huh. You know, definitely a lot of that time spent in in Nigeria. Um, you know, my mother has Creole roots as well, as well as Trinidadian, and my father has Jamaican roots as well as Nigerian. So, I was. Uh, that definitely inspired the way that I cook, the way that I build my flavor profiles. Um, and then also my my teachings, you know, my, my studies. You know, I had a lot of French um, influence in, or French techniques 
that was um, instilled upon me within my studies and in the restaurants that I worked in. So I think a chef is really a culmination of all of those things. Now, we should mention that your restaurant is in D.C. called Kith and Kin, and it gets nothing but rave reviews. (laughs) We're we're very, we're very blessed. Yeah, very, very, um, very fortunate to have a restaurant that's so popular um, and that's busy. And, um, yeah, you know, it's really cool to have a place that represents so many people that are kind of inaudible in this industry. Uh Uh-huh. Well, you know, to fill in the gaps, I mean, we don't want to give too many secrets away, but they should read this book because it really is a thrilling memoir. Thank and, you. And, and we've, I found myself pulling for you at every single turn in Thank the plot. You. Now, you, this is such a success that somebody's making it into a movie, right? Yes, they are. Tell yes, me about that. Yeah, so, you know, when the galley got sent around, it went through Hollywood for a little bit, and um, and a lot of producers, you know, started reaching out to me, you know, trying to turn this into something, trying to turn it into a movie mm-hmm. um, or a TV show. And I settled on a TV show. Uh-huh. No, no. Who, I mean, I settled, I settled on a, a movie. movie. You're doing a movie. Now, who who is going to play you in the movie? Huh? I remember. So, uh, Lakeith Stanfield is playing me in the movie. No he's actually my favorite actor. He was in Get Out, and he's in Atlanta. He's in the new Black Panther movie. Um, so, pretty exciting. Oh, yeah. Now, I remember hearing that Nelson, Man- Nelson Mandela told... Uh, who is it? Who is the... Who's the uh, white, white-haired African-American guy who stars in all the movies? Morgan oh, yeah, Freeman, Morgan, Morgan Freeman. Freeman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a little bigger. <laughs> he, he said, he said Morgan, he, he told Morgan Freeman that, that was the, that was the only person he would accept paying him in the movie. <laughs> so, so it sa- sounds, funny. sounds like you applied the same magic. Exactly, exactly. I, I got lucky. I hit it on the head the first try. Yeah, what's the, what's the, um, timing on this movie? Um, it'll be about three years. I mean, most movies take a long time to really? make more Yeah, I mean, once you start filming, it's a quick process, but from conception to in theaters, it's about a three-year process for sure. Oh, well. So, but you keep breaking through in all kinds of uh, awards, I mean, winning uh, Best New Chef, and um, what are all the awards you're winning, right and left? Yeah. I think it's because you're charming, to tell you the truth. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. I like I like to think it's because I can cook good too. <laughs> well, I have tasted your cooking. Um, yeah. I was yeah, I was thrilled to, to have you as a guest chef at a, a, a dinner in Pittsburgh uh, for a four one two food rescue, which is a wonderful organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that. The mission of that organization, well, the whole thing was just absolutely fantastic. Anyhow, there were all these guest chefs from all across the country, and everyone had a course, and the setting is beautiful, and all the mm-hmm. food was rescued, which I think yeah. was amazing. And it didn't taste rescued. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had, I've had food cooked from scraps that tastes like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you guys really came through. Yeah. Eduardo, I love too. Eduardo Jordan, I love him too. 
Mm-hmm. He's a great guy. Yeah. Great guy. Yeah. Um, now, uh, you've been kind of on, on a celebrity circuit lately, haven't you? Going around uh, cooking. Yeah, cooking for a lot of really interesting people that I've looked up to my entire career, for sure. Tell us about some of those experiences. Um, you know, Dave Chappelle, you know, he's like oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. icon. Yeah, we've interviewed uh, him. Very a cool. legend. A legend. So to be able to cook for him um, during his accomplishments has been a dream come true for me. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Oprah, cooking for her. Cooking for Oprah, her, yeah. Uh, yeah, Common. And, um, you know, it can go on and on. A lot of celebrities come through the restaurant as well from... You know, Wyclef John, Erica Badu to uh, Ari Lennox, you know, and being able to provide a great experience to them um, is, is really cool. You know, it's, it's a cool part of, of what we do day in and day out. Yep, it's a cool part of, of you that you actually have taken up with issues as well as just your celebrity status. Mm-hmm. Tell me some of the other issues you're interested in. Other issues? Yeah. Interest, um, you know, in like in the culinary world. Uh, inclusivity, for sure. You know, making sure that everyone is represented and has a seat at the table, whether mm-hmm. it's women, people of color. Um, you know, just celebrating them and being a part of that mission. It's important to me. You know, they, I, I really think that um, the chefs of color have taken a front seat. Lately, mm-hmm. <laughs> have you noticed? I, mean, I guess you would. Yeah, notice. I mean, definitely, definitely have been uh, getting recognized more and more. You know, I think there are definitely more more publications that can give um, recognition, whether it's Michelin or you know World Fifty Best. Um, you know, I think we have we still have a long way to go. Yeah, you haven't been involved with that uh, circus yet, have you? 50 Not best? yet. No, I, I'm in the Michelin Guide. I don't have a star, but I'm in it. So, uh, what what classification are you in? Uh, just rest, restaurant, you know. Uh-huh. Um, restaurants, noteworthy restaurants in the Michelin Guide. It's like the Bib Gourmet kind of thing. It's not a Bib Gourmand, but it's just a nod. <laughs> Bib Gourmand is just for a certain like price point, so we're right, not right. At, at that price point. But they do give, you know, a nod to restaurants, even though they don't have a star. So they're still featured in the Michelin Guide. Huh. So um, you, you believe, well, I'm not going to ask you that question because that puts you on the spot. Um, I just, uh, where do you come down on this, like the ban on foie gras and all that kind of thing? I mean, I love foie gras, so there are ways to extract it humanely, so... Um, I don't think it's necessary, you know. I think it's terrible, if, actually. If, if that's the case, then just ban all meat, you know. Yeah, but or, that's like, what I think. Do, yeah, but then, you know, how do, where do you draw the line and how do you tell somebody what they can and cannot eat? Yeah. Don't, I mean, I think, yeah, it's a slippery slope is what I say. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. So, and then you have somebody like my husband who, who when he talks to vegetarians about humane eating and stuff, he says his favorite thing is that he feels that carrots hurt when you pull them out of the ground. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You can, you can hear them. If you're going to ban foie gras, you should ban assault rifles first. Oh, you know? well. That's how I feel on that. You know, <laughs> I think our, our, kids, hey. our kids in schools are, are um, 
you know, are important too, just along with the ducks. So. The guy, the, the guy from Texas had it right when they said, yeah. how, "How are you going to get rid of the guns?" And he said, "I'm going to go door door to door and take them away." Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. So what do you have on the horizon that you're looking forward to that I should know about? Yeah. Can I have a scoop of some sort? <laughs> no scoop yet. You know, just just focusing on on what I have right now. You know. And, it's been it's been a great year. You know, I want to make 2020 even better. Right. Well, I think that you've you've certainly jumped into the mainstream of this. Um, who who are your current heroes? My mom is my current hero. Yes. You know, I you know um, um, Jamilka Borg is because you were here for mm-hmm. that dinner. That she says that about her mom too. <laughs> Yeah, my mom's my hero for sure, hands down. Yeah, well, it, she's somewhat responsible for you being here, I suppose, right? I would say so. <laughs> came, came out between her legs, so, <laughs> so, so <laughs> at least halfway responsible. And <laughs> <laughs> she got you straightened out when you needed it most, huh? Exactly, exactly. Do you go visit Kenya? No, but she's coming here for the holidays, so I'm really excited to see her. Oh, your mother is coming. Her. Yeah, she's coming up. So, but I'm excited to go um, down there eventually, whenever I get a chance. The Kenya, you mean? Yeah, Cayman Islands, Grand Cayman. Uh huh. No, you're talking Cayman. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, yeah. Not Kenya. Yeah, I'm talking about. Do you ever go back to Kenya? Nigeria, remember? Oh, to Nigeria. Um, I went like a year and a half ago. Uh huh. Yeah, but, you know, hopefully I can get there. Um, again, this year, I'm looking to go in, in uh, you know, in a couple months again. So that's pretty exciting for me. Always exciting to go back there. Yeah, well, we were we were just at um, Food on the Edge in Galway, Ireland, and, and they had a couple of people um, on the program uh, um, with programs in Africa. And uh, really interesting. I mean, the one program, um, they plucked this one young woman who was, she was in charge of all of her siblings and everything. It was a miracle that she got this, but she got, came to the United States uh, for an extended uh, stage at the, um, Stone Barns at Blue Hill. Wow. Yeah, and then she went back because she had responsibilities. And so she's doing all her working over there. And wow. then um, we talked, uh, who was it we talked to, the, the woman, the well, chief the, of well, Ghana? Well, the interesting, the interesting thing about, to, to, to conclude on this, on the issue of the young lady who, who went to, to work with, uh, with Stone, Stone Barnes, he he was a he's a restaurateur and one of the, I think it might be the on, the only African restaurant in the world's top fifty restaurants. It's called Chef's Warehouse, mm-hmm. and he he has five Chef's Warehouse restaurants. But he takes it's time South Africa, right? He, yeah, but he, yeah. he takes he takes time out to volunteer for this program, which mm. fi- which finds places for people, promising for, students, for, yeah. for, for children who are interested. To go to go and work at game reserves, you know the kind of places where the where mm-hmm. where, where there's go hunting and stuff there. But but also gourmet food as well. Mm-hmm. So so he cool. he he was he was originally Irish, 
but moved to South Africa. I don't think he actually told us when it was. And then the, the, the other one that we met was, are you familiar with this boondoggle called Galenus? Jalinas. Jalinas. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. Well, well, one one of the chefs who who was speaking at this conference was from Ghana, and she she, she was spectacular. And, and, and she's one of the th- I think it's thirty six residents, however many it is, that are cooking for Jolina's stay at home. Yeah, they're cooking. Nice. They're exchanging recipes instead of locations this year. Nice. Yeah, but um, is that Salasi? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She she yeah, gets around. She gets around, right? So you know her, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. She was good. She's on our show. Um, the, uh, I told her, just as we finished interviewing her, I got word from, that somebody came out with the trends predicted for um, this coming year, 2020, and one of them was uh, a rise in, in the uh, prevalence and, and influence of West African cooking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. How about it? So you're in the right place at the right time. <laughs> oh, Kwame. You, you probably know the guy from Senegal, too, right? Yeah, Pierre's my good friend, too. Is yeah. he? Mm-hmm. Did we interview him? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Well, that was a good conference. You have to get yourself in the program from the, for that, Kwame. Yeah, definitely. One day. One day. I got a lot going on right now, so. Yeah, you got to make, we'll make your movie, happen. right? We're making a movie, yeah. <laughs> well, Kwame, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. You're you're on the move, and I know you're busy, and I love yeah. meeting you. And, thank you. Yeah, and uh, it's always good talking to you all. Oh yeah, and let's let's not be strangers, okay? Okay. You okay. know where I'm at. Yeah, I know. Come on by <laughs> and see me, all right? Yes, I will, Kwame. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. And after the break, we're leaving the good old USA to explore the cuisine of two countries that we call them Asian or Oriental, I can never remember. You're talking about Japan? Japan, Japan and the other one is oh, Chinese. Oh, we have Chinese, yeah. <laughs> she, she wasn't paying attention. She didn't really know what's coming next. But, but I'm on the ball. Anyway, don't go away because we'll be right back after a short break. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Our next guest is just an amazing person, Nancy Singleton. Hoshisu, that's a Japanese name. And here's this this wonderful woman who's a native Californian um, who graduated from Stanford University. And then she married her Japanese farmer husband and has lived in rural Japan since 1988. And she's become like a, a the ultimate authority on these rural Japanese traditions of all sorts, particularly culinary. Um, she's written, and, and the books have been acclaimed, um, I think four or something, four or five, and four at least. And uh, the current one is what we're going to talk to her about, and it's called Food Artisans of Japan, 
And it's, first of all, a gorgeous book and beautifully produced and beautifully written. So let's, let's listen to Nancy Singleton. Nancy Singleton, how she sue. Uh, that's a name that rolls off my, my tongue there, Nancy. <laughs> So anyhow, you. I think we've just talked about how we interviewed you for your very first book, um, yes. which wasn't all that long ago, but your story goes back way before that. Mm-hmm. Is Your latest called Food Artisans of Japan, Recipes and Stories, and as all your books, it's beautifully produced and um, with great photography yeah. and and. As I pointed out to you, a lot of soul. You really <laughs> love what you're writing about. Yeah, I do. I yeah. do. And that's why I can write about it, actually. I, you know? Actually. So, but uh-huh. here you are, a California girl. Um, uh-huh. And uh, you were going to go to Japan to learn the language for a year. And then, right. And then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's an old story, but uh, no, I went for a year thinking I was going to come back to the States for graduate school, um, and instead I realized that I needed more time for Japanese, um, and I was going to spend one more year, um, and then still apply to graduate school, but then I met the, um, my husband-to-be, my cute farmer boy, and um, we ended up getting married, and I have three children, uh, and eventually uh, renovating his parents' farmhouse. So we're living in a 90-year-old renovated farmhouse, family farmhouse, and uh, I never went to graduate school, but um, I... But you learned yeah. a lot in the meantime. I mean, you were such yeah. an authority on Japanese food ways, not just um, food, but mm-hmm. the, and you know what you're also into the why and how, and uh, your books are yeah. really I think definitive books in in the field. Um, Thank you. This one is a little bit different from some of the others because um, mm-hmm. it involved. Uh, explain how you organized it and how you found these artisans. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, oh, wait, uh, let me say one more thing before you start. Is I, I think it's a very important book because in Japan, just like every place else, the old ways are getting lost. So that yes, this absolutely. is a way of preserving yes. them. So tell us mm-hmm. now about how you went about this. Okay. Well, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> I was um, I traveled last night, so um, I uh, started traveling um, with a, a television small television crew um, when I was writing the preserving book, which was my second book, mm-hmm. um, because I wanted to write about the artisanal makers of the different elements, the fermented or different elements that we use in pickling or preserving, and uh, like miso and soy sauce and salt, of course, is not a fermented item, but um, it's used in pickling and, and uh, the fish sauce um, and the vinegar. And so... Um, had some small budget, and I went out, started developing relationships um, with these artisanal producers. And um, and you know, it's one thing to research yourself, but when you actually and in, in the first book, I I introduced some of these things like katsubushi, which is smoked 
dried, fermented skipjack tuna. And I researched it. I explained it. But, you know, I really didn't have a handle on it until I actually went there. And now everybody can't do this. So my responsibility is to really convey the, you know, the specialness and the passion and what's, what's really important about this, you know, this, this item, this, this, this element in Japanese food uh, that people just take for granted and get, you know, using less, lower and lower and lower quality versions of the traditional way. By the way, I'm in California outside and now there's sound. I don't know if you can hear me. I, I hear, yes. There's lots of background sound right now. Mm-hmm. The, te- uh, the, the technicians are uh, very alert here. Um, <laughs> can you hear Revan? Yeah, it's kind of, it's yeah. going okay. okay. All right. anyway. Okay. So, um, when I was writing the, so I'd already started developing relationships with various chefs because I was traveling to the area or um, and various artisanal makers. Because, of course, whenever I go to an area, I need to find some place that's good to eat. <laughs> um, and with Japan, relationships take a long time to build. So when I was approached by Fiden to write my third book, Japan the Cookbook, I thought I was going to put food in from these different chefs and also uh, write about these different artisans, and then th- that book took a totally different path. And so I had, I spent a year traveling around Japan for the book, and then um, I realized, I, I, it, it turned out that was not, material was not going to go into the Japan book, and so I had a totally different other book. Yes. <laughs> and so... So I um, I found a publisher for that material, uh, and that's sort of the, the nuts and bolts of how it all started. Well, how did you? Uh, is it's arranged by prefecture? Uh, not really. Now, no. how how what had happened? Oh, okay. Go ahead. Okay. Um, the it's not really by prefecture, but what happened was I, I printed a map of Japan when I was approaching the Japan, the book cookbook project, book number three, and I isolated the areas where I had um, contacts and people and, and, and relationships, and it sort of you know spanned, uh, it represented um, many areas of Japan. I couldn't go everywhere, but I. Um, because you know there was, I had to. This is all author funded, mm-hmm. and there's a limit to how much money that yeah, you could yeah. just spend on travel and photography. And so, um, but uh, it's just um, separated by. Um, in this book, it's separated by area, not necess- not not. Um, it's old areas of Japan. Okay. Um, Which is where Edo. you'd expect to find the uh, uh, old artisanal techniques being pursued, right? No, it's not. It's not that. No, the, the geographic geographic delineation okay. is um, a larger than prefecture. It's an area. It's uh-huh. an old separation that uh, of of and the, the like. Hokkaido is a one island, but. Tohoku represents right. um, several prefectures. 
Right. So, um, so now you just picked the places where you knew there were really superb examples of artisanal producers. The the chefs were what what drove the food. The there's two parts of the book. There's seven chefs, and then there's I think there's like twenty three stories. Not all of them are food producers. Like there's the potter, and then there's and the, the iron, the iron guy, yeah. yeah, but. Um, um, so the, the food was was decided by the chefs that most spoke to me. And then the artisans happened to also be around in the area around the chefs, the artisans that I had developed relationships with. Um, and then some of them, in some cases, like the... Um, in the, the Ito chef um, in his little town, I had not been to the little town, but he introduced me to these various artists. In some part, it was uh, he specifically introduced me to uh, the artisans, whereas other places I had known the artisans first, or or not. Actually, <laughs> it it was a mixed bag, you know. So in some places, I knew the artisans first, and then I found the chef, and then other places it was the chef that introduced me to the artisans. Now, the uh, recipes that you included um, are very forward-thinking and sophisticated, I believe. Yeah, so what happened was I was thinking of putting those the Japanese, the, the French-Japanese the French or Italian-Japanese chefs in the back of the Fiden book and then using the Japanese-Japanese chef material in the front of the Fiden book because that was a book about all Japanese food, but this new wave Japanese food is, is really interesting. Um, <clears throat> so there's two kinds of chefs in the book. Two, the two main chefs, main body of, of the work, like 45 recipes are, are from a, my local soba chef friend who has done four dinners at Chez Panisse, and then the other, it's like 25, so it represents more than half of the recipes are Japanese, Japanese. Um, and then the others are from chefs that I just, that, that are very careful about their using local ingredients and really um, sourcing um, excellent ingredients and locally. And then they also have, they have, they've, um, technically it's French, but Japanese feeling. And it depends on each chef. They have a slight, a different feel. Um, it's, there's a, like, with new contemporary Japanese food, it's either Western based with Japanese feel or Japanese based with Western touch. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, what people used to call fusion, but it's not that. Right. You know, it's this kind of this beautiful Japanese sensibilities, but it has the roots of both Japanese and and uh, Western, uh, whether it's mostly Italian or French. Well, I, I want to eat some of these dishes so badly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to come to some of the events we're doing. I just learned. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, I wish. I, wish. Um, <laughs> I didn't know. Sorry, I can't. I, I know. I, I thought about last, last year, um, talking about coming to, to Pittsburgh for some reason, um, I guess it's a hot food town now, right? It, I guess so. I mean, we just had Katie Parla from Rome uh-huh. doing a book 
tour. Yeah. Oh, um, right. Uh-huh. So anyhow, um, but no, I mean, these, these recipes are just so absolutely delicious sounding and, um, you know, and not, not just routine. I mean, they're really very sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Well, some of the ones, especially like from Namaya's on the, the chefs that are, he's, he's the most, I think. You're a fan. Okay, I'm trying. Um, <clears throat> so some of the chefs, um, especially Mich- uh, uh, Namaya-san, he has two Michelin stars. Um, his recipes are, yeah, they are complicated or they have many pieces. But you can just take out one piece and use and do that. And, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now I, I did that. I did a chef's cookbook, and I've never done a complete recipe. He liked to have many components. <laughs> so I yeah, yeah. And it's, it's you know there's some interesting techniques. You know. Oh, the techniques! Like, You've explained an awful lot about um, ingredients and techniques in this book, and I mean, mm-hmm. it, it talk about complicated but complicated in uh, a very specific way uh, attention to detail kind of way mm-hmm. and 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 i was sad reading about things that even in japan aren't available anymore you know and and thinking that we won't ever be able to get these things oh well that's not true because um it's actually a good time in in Japanese food right now because um, there's been the food that the ingredients are coming to the it's a little actually the US is the slowest to get the better ingredients is it? because it's such a huge country and there's no specific distributor that's really concentrating on bringing there's a few distributors like Japanese Pantry or and they've got the but they're San Francisco-based, and then um, uh, Mutual Trading or NA Sales, but they're, they have from Kikoman to um, Yamaki. You know, they have a huge range, and they're mostly on the lower end because they're supplying to Japanese restaurants all over the country. So, um, but Australia is doing really well. I, I, I introduced a line to them, to a, a, a food company there, is getting better, UK, so, um, so it's coming. Or they, these products are coming. It's just, you know, some of the things like in the U.S., HACCP is putting a big, I mean, HACCP is a, a um, what do you call it, a certification required by the by FDA or somebody in the U.S. government <clears throat> to, to certify that, I think it's mainly often for fish products perhaps, Maybe not just for fish products. Certify the baking conditions. You know, these are all small artisanal producers, and you know, to to put in the money to, to get the certification, it's, uh-huh. you know, it's not cost effective, and so you know, sort of U.S. is kind of killing that kind of uh, the ability to bring in artisanal stuff. But some of them, some of the you know, small producers are getting support from the prefectural government. Um, but yeah, it's, they're coming and, and just because you know, the Japanese aren't using these ingredients so much. So <clears throat> who are you going to sell them to? Yeah. To better restaurants in Japan, very small portion of people who are cooking at home in Japan, and then another good market, if you can get them out of the country or get somebody to sell them out of the country, 
is the Salem Rod. So um, shining a light on them and, and why they are so special, this is this is my responsibility. So this is kind of my mantle that I've taken on is to, um, and I, I'm going to start actually organizing trips to people. I can take people to, to visit the um, producers. Nobody speaks Japanese. You know, the um, most of the Arizona producers don't have Japanese, I mean, sorry, English. Uh, right. <laughs> right. They all speak Japanese, but so <laughs> trying to, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's about, um, you know, appreciating why is this really simple method, why is it so special to preserve it as it is rather than all these, like, misos that are, you know, bizarre versions of miso. And what happened to miso that is this thousand-year-old food that is perfect as it is? And why are we changing it? Or why are we? Why are we? (laughs) Why are we changing it? We're just changing it to be smelt smelt miso and peanut miso and all sorts of I, I didn't count them but I saw your your, your section on um, different kinds of miso <laughs> uh-huh. I wouldn't even know where to start but there's a, I just used basically one or the other but here there are all these yeah. options and then I kept trying to figure out if my um, soy sauce even was was acceptable <laughs> even my soy sauce I wonder if it was acceptable it's Anything's acceptable. Every probably ninety percent of Japanese use the cheapest soy sauce available. You know, um, maybe that's a high number, but maybe not <clears throat> because that's just part of life. Um, and um, if, if I just like a a stronger uh, something with lots of flavor that's yes. well made, but you can make. Do with anything, and 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 oh my gosh, it's so loud here. Oh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> you hey. can make do with with anything. It's just it's not, like soy sauce. Soy sauce, um, artisanal soy sauce, is going to deliver much more flavor, and so you can use less. Uh-huh. And this is kind of a point that. You have to keep adding more and more soy sauce in if it's a low-level soy exactly. sauce because it has, and so that changes how you cook. Right. I can't yeah. remember the brand we get, but it's much. We get we get one, we use one called tamari, and it's right. ma- of all things, it's made in Richmond, Richmond Virginia. <laughs> right. Uh, San is it San Diego people? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's good soy it's sauce. Good. Is 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 not bad. Um, the um, tamari is just um, it's it's made without soy sauce. is made from soybeans and ra- roasted cracked wheat. Yes, but tamari tamari is made um, without the wheat. Right, and right. so it's much. Well, that's uh, they advertise that it's gluten free. I mean, that's a selling point for them. Yeah, it's yeah. tamari is a very teeny teeny portion of of the soy sauce in Japan, and it's basically only consumed in Aichi Prefecture. Mm. Yeah, and, and so, 
Let me, let me tell you this to... one here. This this guy's cute. This Katsuyasu Ito. Oh yeah. <laughs> Good looking guy. Sweet. Yeah. He's a very sweet guy, yeah. Well, he's very good-looking, anyhow. <laughs> but see, there's things that, I mean, like, it's, we have a terrible time getting sea cucumber, and I love sea cucumber. Oh, really? Yes. I love it, too. Do you? Um, and yeah. you have a recipe for sea cucumber with grated cucumber and, and sweet right. vinegar. And That's delicious, I yeah. can tell you, if I get sea cucumber, it's going to be frozen and it's hung around for God knows how many. Oh, really? <laughs> isn't, isn't, yeah. isn't that espadanias? Yeah, it is. Espadanias. We, we had, had espadanias the last time we were in Barcelona. Yeah, espadanias in Spanish. It's called espadanias in Spain. In oh, okay. Yeah. Right, right. It's, it's, the yeah. chew, it's the chewing mechanism of the sea cucumber. Is that it? Oh, okay, okay. There's a lot of that particular texture in Japan. We have amazing clams and um, and, and, and abalone is eaten raw. Oh, yeah. And, you can't and I, I that that, yeah, the, the chewiness is very appealing for me, you know. Um, yeah. It's, like, it's one recipe and it was just such a beautiful dish and so simple. So um, I included it. Well, you know, the, of course, the beautiful part is something you expect from Japanese um, dishes, how they're served. I mean, but they really are beautiful, these mm-hmm. dishes there yeah. that you included. Well, so. the, especially uh, the two Japanese, Japanese chefs, uh, the, the ones in the uh, Kanji and Nakatani section and, and, and uh, Shinichiro Sakamoto section, um, the dishes in Japanese restaurant are very important, um, and less so in a Western restaurant, mm-hmm. a Western-style Japanese restaurant. So, uh, but yeah, very, very important. And another another dish I want is your Jerusalem artichoke soup with grilled mackerel. Oh, that is, yeah, we're going to do that someplace. I can't remember where. Oh, I'm going to do it in Australia. <laughs> oh, where, you're going to Australia. Where are you going to be in Australia? Um, I'm going to be in Australia uh, December uh, November 29th to December 8th. I'm going to be doing a cooking class on Tasmania or in Tasmania at uh, the Agrarian Kitchen and then uh, something in Brisbane at Gerard's Bar and a dinner at Du Fermier in Trenton, the Melbourne area, and then a couple workshops um, uh, pickling up uh Rice bread pickling workshops and miso soup uh, building workshop at CB in Melbourne. Um, so you're going so. to be in Tasmania? Yeah. Yeah, our cousin lives in Tasmania, in Devonport. Oh. And he's, wow. he's the main grower of organic avocados in Tasmania. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, I should email me about that after. Will you, will you I'd be? Like to hear about that. Will you be in, Sid- be- in Sydney? No, I'm not going to go to Sydney this time. Okay, I had to cut that off. Yeah. Yeah, we just yeah. Uh, we were just at the um, Food on the Edge conference in um, Galway, and talked to um, the um, what's his name, Josh Nyland Nyland from uh, oh, St. Yeah. Peter. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know yeah. him. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, he, uh, uh, we went to his restaurant. I was doing a dinner at Fred's next door, uh, a couple doors down, <coughs> and. Um, 
one of the last trips, or a couple trips ago, last, last fall. And so we went into dinner um, at uh, Josh's place, and, uh, um, and yeah, he's, he's very nice. He's there. Oh, no, they all have my books. So my, my Brazilian book, actually, is quite popular with the chefs. Yeah, well, he he his new book um, actually is a, the whole fish cookbook. Um, it's revolutionary in how he advises you to handle and cook fish. It's really very important. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, Nancy, you know we're, we keep fading out here, so I think I'm afraid your power is going to go. I don't want you to be stuck without power. Well, I had to get in a corner to get away from the sound. That was the problem. I so I might have gotten out of. I was trying to escape that sound. So, and, and it's wonderful uh, that you've produced this book, and I think it goes a long way to making sure that uh, people pay attention to preserving some of these um, skills and, and flavors. And mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, and and um, yeah, and I wish you much success with this, and I hope you enjoy Thank your you. book tour. And we, and Thank we, you. Well. For just one last, one of the things um, I think it's important about writing all of this is it also um, comes back to Japan, and by shining this light out into the world, it does come back to Japan. We call it reverse um, exportation, and, and so it does come back, and then the pride rises throughout Japan. So um, that's why it's important to do it. That's why I do it. Well, that's great that we do this um professor who studies this. What village is that? I don't know the name of the village. But it's in Japan, right? Yeah, we have a friend who's an anthropologist, and he's been been studying a small village in Japan for for like 40 years. 40 years. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And then he notices the changes, but he thinks McDonald's is a good sign because it's gotten people to eat, families to eat together again. (laughs) <laughs> so there we are. <laughs> seems like, always seemed like a kind of a shaky point of view. <laughs> but anyway, what, 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 watch out for those flames and all that smoke. We, we hope it doesn't, oh, thank you. Yeah, we hope yeah, it doesn't yeah. affect you and those of your family that you mentioned to us before we started this interview. And uh, we wish you, you the very best on your travels. Okay. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you guys again. Yeah. We, we okay. just we just talked to uh, Fuchsia Dunlop. So, on, uh, oh, you did. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. She's in Seattle. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, so. she's, we're crossing over. She's in. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Finally, but certainly not the least of our stars this day, is uh, Fuchsia Dunlop, and uh, she's... That's that's one hell of a name, huh? Oh, she's such an extraordinary person, and um, this book, I I can't even say it's my go-to Bible on um, uh, Sichuan Chinese food. Um, It's called The Food of Sichuan, and it tells you just about everything you'd ever want to know about Sichuan, Besides 
providing you with absolutely amazing recipes. This is a, a definitive Sichuan cookbook. Fuchsia Dunlop, um, it must be an amazing feeling to be like the ultimate export, expert on a, um, a cuisine, as you are. The ultimate export, too. Huh? And, and the ultimate export, too. <laughs> we'll fix that. But anyhow, um, it, you, you wrote a book a while ago called Land of Plenty, which was determined to be the ultimate resource on Sichuan food. But you now updated it. Um, how many years later? Almost 30? No. It's been 18 years, 18 nearly years. 20 years later, the new edition, The Food of Sichuan. Right, and it's called The Food of Sichuan, and it's a new and updated edition of the classic Land of Plenty. Uh, I wanted to jump back, and, and first I want to ask you uh, why it needed to be updated. Well, I was just aware that when I first brought out the book Land of Plenty, Sichuanese cuisine was not very well known in the West at all. Ingredients were hard to find. Most people thought of Chinese cuisine as being the Cantonese, Cantonese yeah. cuisine that had been dominant for, for a long time. And um, in the last nearly 20 years, Sichuanese food has become so popular, not only in China, but all over the world. It's become really the world's hottest Chinese cuisine. In many ways. Literally. <laughs> and... Um, so I'm, I just wanted to update it to reflect that and also the fact that I now have 15 or 20 years more experience of the food. Right. And I wanted to update it with all kinds of new recipes, both recipes that have become very popular in the last 20 years and also recipes reflecting the regional diversity of Sichuan. So I've kept on exploring the region, researching, collecting recipes, and the new edition has about 70 new recipes, and some of them from different parts of Sichuan province. Yeah, see, I didn't know about that. There was so much regional diversity um, in the Sichuan uh, cuisine. But, you know, I was surprised all of a sudden uh, Sichuan restaurants started popping up in funny places, you know. And uh, but I... I remember in the late 1960s in Upper West Side, New York, it was our go-to neighborhood restaurant. Was And I had always soft-shell crabs with spicy black beans. And, and I, used to, I used to order beef with peppers and, and, eat, all yeah. the pep- and eat all the peppers. <laughs> but, but I think in the past, sort of in America and in Britain, where Sichuanese food was advertised, very often it was actually Cantonese restaurateurs adding a bit of chili to some dishes and calling it Sichuanese. Uh-huh. But what's happening now is you're getting so many really authentic Sichuanese Sichuan restaurants catering not just for every kind of American, but particularly for a Chinese market, uh-huh. you know, Chinese students and Chinese business people and people who've recently come from China and they want to eat the food that they like at home. So it's not really adapted to Western tastes. It's real Sichuan cooking. You know, we have... Um, um, as you, you is that better? It, yeah, you got it again. Fuchsia, there is a, a, a restaurant in... Uh, you know, we live in Pittsburgh. Um, there's a, a restaurant that is really popular with chefs, particularly. Um, and it's 
It's called Chengdu. <laughs> Chengdu is called. Chengdu Gourmet is called. And um, I think it's authentic. If you order off, there are two menus. The one is Americanized and the other one is true, more authentic. Yes. <laughs> and Chengdu, of course, is the name of the Sichuan capital, and that's where I lived when I was living in Sichuan. Exactly. and But the, the chef is highly trained, uh, and he just, uh, I think last year, went back for even additional training. In, um, Lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really a hole in the wall, though, I must say. <laughs> you think it deserves better yeah, digs. but I mean, one of the great things about Sichuanese cuisine is that it doesn't have to be really fancy. So there is a Sichuanese style of banquet cooking, which is very laborious and uses expensive ingredients. But one of the, the, the great things about the cuisine is that just holes in the wall in China, in Sichuan, serve the most delicious noodles and dumplings and snacks that you'll have anywhere, really. Now, how do you organize this book, and how should people approach it? And do you think that actually um, that people will be actually cooking these recipes at home? I think so. I mean, a lot of people seem to cook from land of plenty, and I have messages all the time on social media, um, people posting photographs of dishes they've cooked, yeah. <laughs> saying they cook from it all the time. It's their most stained cookbook covered in cooking oil and hot sauce. So I hope people will cook from it. And I have made an effort. I mean, the new edition has lots of beautiful photographs of many of the dishes, which I think will help people who are not used to the cuisine. And also, I always try to include lots of recipes that are very easy, that don't use many ingredients. So once you've got the basic pantry, the store cupboard essentials like soy sauce and chilies and chili bean paste, Shaoxing wine, you don't need that many of them. And then you can make many of the dishes in the book with just what you can find in your local market or supermarket. You also have a lot of instruction, a lot of information about how to, how to go about Zechuan cuisine. Yes, and I think I would recommend that people read the introduction first if they can, because that will show you the basic ingredients, the basic skills of the Sichuan kitchen, and that will make tackling any recipe in the book much easier and much quicker. Now, and you were explaining prior to our starting the, the interview um, about the diversity. Um, there are two aspects that we're going to talk about diversity. One, uh, the diversity of the country, um, the territory itself, the terroir, I guess. Uh, there are so many different regional variations. And then uh, secondly, uh, from my reading your book, there were a lot of outside dishes brought in and adapted to the Sichuan cuisine. Can you tell us about those, both those things? Yes, well, Sichuan is a large area. I think it's about tw I think it's um, about twice the size of Italy. And, I laugh. Um, I couldn't believe that. I mean, that's so amazing <laughs> how little we understand about the, the geography. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes, and and within Sichuan, um, broadly speaking, the food of Chongqing, which is now a separate, like a little province, but is part of Sichuanese cuisine. The food of Chongqing is very hot and spicy, 
Um, so it's famous for the mala, numbing and hot flavors, and for hearty farmhouse dishes, huge portions with, you know, little bits of food buried in piles of chilies. Um, <laughs> and the food of Chengdu, the capital, is a bit gentler and has a, an element of sweetness to it. So those are two big differences already. But then every little town and every other city in the region has its own specialities, its special pickles, its street snacks, um, its classic dishes. Um, in researching the new edition, I spent quite a bit of time in the south of Sichuan, which is a very lush agricultural region. And there, there were different there's a particular cooking method people like very much called xiao chao, small stir-fry, when you stir-fry very fast, um, hot wok, hot oil, and different kinds of meat and offal with lots of, lots of heat and spice. And in the south, they also really like using pickled chilies and pickled ginger together, and some fresh herbs like spearmint and um, Korean mint. Um, so, yes, you can find whenever you travel to a new part of Sichuan province, there will be restaurants and snack shops proudly advertising the local specialities. Uh, and the other aspect of yeah. diversity is that Sichuanese people are always very keen to stress that their province and its cuisine are extremely baorong, which means open, inclusive, exactly. tolerant. And historically, Sichuan has always been a melting pot of influences from all over the place, most famously the Chile, which of course came from the Americas and has only been established as a local crop in Sichuan for about 200 years. So that's just one example of an outside influence. But there are little street snacks that reflect northern Chinese influences Western influences, there's a particular kind of eggy pancake with a sweet or savory stuffing, which is in the book, called Dan Hong Gao, which is thought to have been a version of a, a European snack that was brought by missionaries to Chengdu in the early 20th century. And that continues today in the reform period. There's all kind of mixing and travel in China, and again, lots of influences from other regions and from abroad. Yeah, now, um, there are so many aspects. I don't know where to go next with this. I mean, just just talking about their noodles would be a whole program. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting because although, um, generally speaking, the southern parts of China, including Sichuan, are rice eaters. Yeah. So most main meals and formal meals are structured around rice. Mm -hmm. But... Um, yes, and the, it's the northerners who have so many different noodle dishes and different kinds of pasta. But in Sichuan, noodles are popular as a snack and a casual meal. And so you have these wheat noodles with the dazzling, electrifying flavors of Sichuanese cooking. So most famously, dandan noodles. Right. And dandan is named after the shoulder pole, which the street vendors use to carry around barrels or baskets with their little stoves and ingredients in serving dishes so they could walk around the streets shouting, Dan, Dan, noodles, and then people would ask them to stop and boil up a little bowl. Um, so, um, yeah, how do yeah. they eat them in the street? I think it would be a little awkward. 
oh, just a little bowl, pair of chopsticks, very easy. <laughs> and then apart from that, there are other, and I have particularly put several new noodle dishes into the new edition. Um, one of them is buckwheat noodles, which is another local, local speciality. So really delicious with spicy seasonings, very quick recipe to make. And I've also got one recipe for a famous Chengdu street snack called sweet water noodles, tian shui mian, mm-hmm. which is hand-cut chunky noodles with spicy, sweet, savory seasonings, and they're irresistible too. Um, tell us about the meat. Well, the meat. So the main meat in Sichuan is pork. And in fact, all over China, apart from the Muslims, who of course don't eat any pork, when Chinese people say rou, meat, they mean pork unless otherwise specified. So that is the main meat in Sichuanese cooking. But there are a few exceptions. So there are some excellent beef dishes as well, particularly from the southern town of Zigong, where they had an ancient salt industry, so mining salt from beneath the earth for more than 2,000 years. And oxen were used to draw the machinery which brought up the salty brine from deep in the earth. And uh, so the people of Zugong had a supply of beef. Um, so they have a particular famous beef dish, Shui which literally means water-boiled beef, but is actually a fiery, hot, sizzly, oily dish. <laughs> very delicious, very mala, numbing and hot. Yeah, I love the poetic names that all these dishes have. Now, now, we've, yes. now we've been hearing in the news about a very unpleasant outbreak of, is it swine fever? Yes, swine something. It was pigs. Yes, swine, African swine fever is a real problem, and it's... Um, causing devastation to the Chinese pork industry. So the, ri- um, the, the price of pork is rising. Um, but I should stress that there's no danger to people from eating pork. It's a danger to the pigs themselves. So it's terrible for the industry, but there's no risk to human health. Right, but but the, the supply is diminishing. Yes, so the price of pork is going up, and that's something that everyone is talking about in China at the moment because it's such an important meat in the local diet. What do they drink in Sichuan? Well, often for casual meals, they're not very particular about drinks, so you might just have a bowl full of noodles in soup, and the soup is your drink. And most meals, you have a light broth, which is a refreshing contrast to all those bold and spicy flavors. So that's actually like the liquid refreshment during the meal. But people also, for more casual meals, they now enjoy drinking um, beer and certain kinds of tea, like roasted buckwheat tea is very fashionable at the moment. And then if people want to drink more serious alcohol, there are very strong, intense, Baijiu, grain liquors, which are normally drunk in toasts and especially for banquets and formal occasions and get-togethers with friends. And also in recent years, there's a fashion for grape wines, particularly dry red wines. Really? Well, yeah, yeah we, ju- we just read in The Economist that Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, the, the very important... British, French, yes, well, I mean, 
they, they, people, rich they, Chinese people are very keen on international premium products, yes. whether it's branded handbags or Chateau Lafitte and other expensive Bordeaux wines. Yeah, well, we found a bunch of um, uh, uh, exchange students, especially graduate students at, at a Chinese restaurant in, in our city, um, were very fond of fine cognac. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which you don't usually associate with drinking during your yeah, we meal. Don't, we don't know where they got the money from. <laughs> no, well, one thing that actually a surprisingly good match for Sichuanese food is whiskey. And some of the real foodies I know in China are becoming keen on pairing whiskey, Scotch whiskey, with Chinese and really? especially Sichuanese food. Well, it's a big market. Everybody's coveting, you know, the... the the big share of the Chinese market for um, yes. liquor, I know. Um, you have sort of lists, I call them listicles, and uh, one of them is very large called Sauces and Dips. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, there are so many really delicious dips which are used in Sichuan for all kinds of ingredients, tofu, vegetables, um, and meat, soups, and so on. And I just thought these sauces, many of them, although they might be paired with a particular local dish, they can also be used in lots of other contexts. So I wanted to have a section of sauces and dips that people could then make separately and eat with anything they like. I see. <laughs> well, and also, another of your listicles is the 20, 23 flavors of Sichuan. Uh, how did you determine that? Well, I didn't determine that. That was how we were taught when I was at chef school in Sichuan. Okay. We learned 23 sort of official flavor combinations, a bit like the, the canon of French sauces. Right. So we would learn how to combine different seasonings to make a particular balance of the different tastes. And it's a very useful way to think about um, the art of Sichuanese cooking, these flavor combinations, because that's really what the local food is about. And, um, you know, you can take a combination like Yuxiangwei, fish fragrant flavor, completely delicious mixture of pickled chilies, ginger, garlic, scallion, and a bit of sugar and vinegar for sweet and sour. And you can take that combination and you can use it for cold dishes, for hot dishes. You can use it for vegetables, meat, poultry, all kinds of ingredients. So it's like a French sauce that you can take the principle and apply it to other ingredients. So it's a very useful way to learn about the cuisine. And, and then you have 56, which seems like a lot of cooking methods. But it's if you read through, it's broken down into things like raw frying, cooked frying, small frying. <laughs> Again, it's just soft frying. <laughs> it's well, so yes, but it's a, very, um, it's a very sophisticated cuisine. So a word that we use in English like stir-frying, there are several different variations. So Sichuanese chefs will distinguish them according to the heat of the fire, um, the temperature of the oil, the, the way that you cook. And again, it just shows you some of the subtlety and the advanced techniques, if you like, of Sichuanese cooking. 
Yeah, it, it looks to me like it would take a lifetime to learn all these details. <laughs> so you should be very well, proud I mean, of yourself. Well, I mean, it would take a lot. It would take a lifetime to become a high-level Sichuan chef for sure. But it's mm. important to remember that Sichuanese cooking is just what people in Sichuan just do at home every night after a hard day's work. Mm. So it go. You know, you can cook easy home-style dishes and very satisfying and delicious food. You don't have to be all serious and theoretical about it. Not at all. Well, listeners, this is, I would say, the definitive book of the moment about the food of Sichuan um, by expert Fuchsia, Fuchsia Dunlop. And um, I, I just think it's amazing. I've been fascinated by this book since I got it. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so, Fuchsia, thank you so much and uh, enjoy Seattle. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. <laughs> okay, sweetheart. So you have you have no excuse now. You, have to, you have to cook, Jap- oh, well, cook Jap- Sichuan, Japanese, and, Japanese and, 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 and and some Kwame recipes, some Kwame recipes in between. Well, yeah, well. Seriously, folks, we'll be back same time, same place next week with more fascinating stories of food, wine, and travel. And in the meantime, bye bye.